morning, church. Let us pray. Father, we are blessed to be here this morning as a body of people to whom Christ has been revealed. And we're so grateful to be ones who are in fellowship with you, in fellowship with one another, and those who desire to see Christ anew. And to that end, Father, now we, we open the Scriptures to the book of Leviticus. And we say to you once again, Father, would you please show us Christ in the book of Leviticus? And would you grant us to rejoice in the fellowship that we have with you and with one another? Would you grant us to see appropriate ways to express that fellowship and that rejoicing in communion in our everyday lives? Would you do that for us, please, in the coming moments? We need your help in these things. We pray for them boldly because of what Christ has done for us, shedding his blood for our sins. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, please open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 3. Leviticus chapter 3. This morning we'll be considering all of Leviticus 3 and we'll, we will read all of Leviticus 3 to begin. So as you're finding your place there, if you would stand with me. And I will read that text for us. Leviticus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord, lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's son shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering to the Lord its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail cut off close to the backbone and the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. If his, if his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord and lay his hand on its head and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. 
Then he shall offer from it as his offering for a food offering to the Lord, the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. You may be seated. Does that make you hungry? Reading all that? Actually, it's all about eating. And uh, we think about, uh, when we think about celebrating in our culture, and actually in any culture, it's hard to think about celebrating without food. We're kind of wired to celebrate with food. We do it with birthday parties. And I, I wonder if any of us have ever watched a Super Bowl without sharing a meal. It's kind of hard to even th- conceive of such a thing. Watching a Super Bowl without eating at the same time and, and talking. We symbolically shared a meal this morning as we as we observed the Lord's Supper, celebrating our union with one another and with Christ. We look forward to the, the New Testament. There's a fantastic celebration meal there in the parable of the, of, the, of the prodigal son. Great example of this. The prodigal son, he goes away. When he returns, what does the father do? He tells the servants to kill the fatted calf. They're going to have a feast and celebrate with a meal because there's been this great reconciliation. And, and often in our, in our culture, we, we celebrate, and not only celebrate, in particular we celebrate relationships through sharing a meal. Well, The, the, the greatest reason for celebration in the human experience is the reconciliation of sinners to our loving Heavenly Father. And the peace offering that we have just read about depicts or, or sets up the sharing of a meal of celebration. And it is an offering by which the offerer says to the Lord, I rejoice because I have peace and fellowship with you through your gracious provision. So this morning we'll be considering the ways in which we demonstrate the celebration of fellowship that we have with the Lord. Now, as we've noted in, in previous weeks, Leviticus is designed to turn our eyes to the central reality of human existence, which is that we were created for fellowship with God or to abide with God. It also answers the central question of human history, which is how can I, as a sinner, enter the presence of a holy God? Or how can I approach God? Said another way, how can I approach God so that I can abide with God? And so, the book begins with these three offerings that depict life with God, the joy of abiding with Him. And so we've considered first in our in our first week we considered the burnt offering or as we called it the ascension offering whereby the offerer says to God I I belong to you and with you and then last week we considered the grain offering or tribute offering whereby the offerer says you are God and I worship you and I thank you for everything that you have given to me and now we consider the peace offering and the peace offering, again, is that offering which says, I rejoice 
because I have peace and fellowship with you through your gracious provision. Now, as with the, the previous offerings we've, we've looked at, the Lord gives several options as we, as we noted, as we, we read here. With the peace offering, there is one offering, but there are several options. And so verses 1 through 5 give the, the instructions for how to bring this offering if you're going to bring an offering from the herd. Verses 6 through 11 give instructions for how to bring that offering if you're going to bring an offering from the sheep. Verses 12 through 16 give instructions for an offering from the goats. And then verse 17 is a, a broad rule regarding the prohibition of eating fat and blood. So once again, let's consider uh, what this would be like if we were putting ourselves in the shoes of the offerer. You are giving this offering. And so whether from the herd or the sheep or the goats, you are going to choose an unblemished animal. And again, this is an animal that you have raised. You know this animal. It's not a pet. It's your food. It's your money. But you're going to pick an animal that is unblemished. It has no physical defects. And remember that this word unblemished is, is translated elsewhere in the Old Testament as, as blameless. And that's significant because we read in places like Psalm 15, that same word, Psalm 15 asks the question, Who shall dwell in your holy tent? The one who walks blamelessly. And so this without blemish animal or blameless animal is a, is, is, is a picture of what is required of the person who would be in God's presence. Now, unlike the ascension offering, as you're bringing your offering, you may choose a male or a female. The ascension offering had to be a male, but with the peace offering, it can be a male or a female. And you are once again going to put your hand on the head of that animal and you're going to lean your weight onto that, that animal's head to identify yourself with that animal. And then you will slaughter that animal. Now, what's not noted here but is assumed likely is that you will also skin that animal and you will chop that animal up into pieces now, someone sent a, a question into the podcast regarding the great physical labor that's required here. What about those people who may have been unable to do this by themselves? Maybe the elderly or, 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 or women or younger people. What would they do if they couldn't do this? Well, it, we don't know for sure, but it's possible, especially in this instance, that there may have been family members doing this together. At any rate... The next part in this ritual is the priest catching this blood and throwing that blood against the side of the altar. And here's a crucial difference between this offering and the ascension offering. With the ascension offering, the whole animal was burnt up. It was, it was all offered up in smoke as a fragrant aroma to the Lord. With this offering, as you noted, it was repeated three times. With this offering, it was the fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver those particular pieces were offered up in smoke as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So, what does all this mean? Well, with the first point in your notes, we're going to build a definition of the peace offering once again. And so, the peace offering was, first of all, an expression of joyful fellowship. It was an expression of joyful fellowship. The peace offering is associated with Rejoicing in numerous Old Testament texts. I'm going to give you just two examples. One is in Deuteronomy 27.7 where Moses 
commanded the people what they should do upon finally entering the promised land. After, after many years of slavery in Egypt and then many years of sojourning in the wilderness, he says, here's what you're finally going to do when you enter the land. You're going to sacrifice peace offerings and eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. He's associating rejoicing with these peace offerings. A second example of, of, of the association of rejoicing with peace offerings is at the coronation of Saul in 1 Samuel eleven fifteen, where we read that they, the people, they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Now, the idea of, re- of rejoicing is also suggested by these elements of the animal that are offered up in smoke to the Lord, the, the fat, the kidneys, and the liver. Now, I, I remember once, I, I don't make these same associations of, of these particular things with rejoicing. I remember once when I was a little boy, my mom served liver for dinner, and I had no idea that a liver was an organ. I just knew that it was not meant for food. And my dad was putting this away like it was chocolate. But my mom and I, we had a battle of the wills that night. And as I recall, she won. But I, I, from that day forward, I have, have associated liver with great suffering, not, not rejoicing. But the Bible does something completely different with the liver and the kidneys and, and the entrails. You will find, if you, if you have access to the original languages, and you can get these on, online, you will find that, that what we think of metaphorically as the heart, the seat of the emotions, particularly in the Old Testament, you will find the words like entrails, kidneys, liver. Because in, in the ancient Near East, those were the organs that they associated with the deepest emotions. And you can find those words in places like Psalm 16:7, Jeremiah 17:10, many other places. And that's a good way to translate the Bible. It's good for our translations to use the word heart instead because imagine if we were to read something like in Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the kidneys and test the mind. Well, that doesn't really make sense to us. We're like, what on earth? But it's good for our translations to say, I, the Lord, search the heart because that's, that's how we think and, and that's what really gets at the sense of the text. We understand searching the heart. That's our cultural equivalent. Anyway, offering up these these organs in smoke is an expression of the offerer's deepest emotions to the Lord because where there was enmity, now there is peace between God and the offerer. That's what's being expressed here. These particular organs mean something. So the offerer has fellowship with God. The offerer is rejoicing in this. The peace offering was an expression of joyful fellowship. The next part is afforded by atonement. Afforded by atonement. Sinful people can't be in the presence of a holy God. That's that's our big problem ever since Genesis chapter 3. The man and the woman sinned against God and they are then separated from God. Sin contaminates And sin deserves justice. And this blameless animal has been sacrificed as a picture of atonement. And atonement in Leviticus, it actually carries two ideas. It involves both the satisfaction of wrath and removal of uncleanness. And this has to happen in order for the offerer to to enjoy fellowship with God. And we'll see in the coming weeks, though, that 
The peace offering actually is not the main offering of approach, as we're calling them. It's not the offering that you make when you've sinned against God. So when, so when you've really sinned, you do not bring a peace offering to God. You'll bring one of the next two that we'll look at in the coming couple of weeks, Lord willing. But what we have here, the reason that we have blood being spilled, is that within the peace offering, there is this reminder that it is only by atonement that the offerer has fellowship with the Lord. So the peace offering was an expression of joyful fellowship afforded by atonement, depicted by a shared meal. Depicted by a shared meal. There's a couple of clues within chapter 3 that we're talking about a shared meal. There are clues outside of chapter 3 that we're talking about a, a shared meal. First of all, Although the ESV uses the phrase food offering throughout these early chapters, this offering, the peace offering, is the only one that's actually called the food offering in the original language. And I I mentioned that a couple of weeks ago, that, that typically where we see food offering in the ESV, the underlying text reads, offering by fire. And there are reasons that the ESV does this, and, and it's fine to do that, but I'm just pointing this out to you. But by the way, if you want a good, a, a good translation for studying the text that, that catches these kinds of, of, of nuanced things, a, a text that is literal enough that it catches these things, but it's not so literal that it sounds almost like it's, it's another language, I found the Lexum the Lexum English Bible to be great. Now, I think that you can only find this on Logos Bible software but you can get it in the very base package. You, you get it for almost nothing. But it's, it's worth the money. It's, it's very, very good. Anyway, look at verse 11 where it says food offering. And look at verse 16 where it says food offering. Those are the only places in these early chapters where the, the original text actually says food. And that's significant because... It means that this peace offering is the only one that is actually intended to be understood as something like a meal. Okay? A second clue is that this chapter is is really all about what goes to God of this animal. The fat, the kidneys, the liver. And so we may be left wondering, inquiring minds may be left wondering, well, what happens to all the rest of the animal? And implied may be that the rest is taken either by the priest or the offerer. Chapter 7 actually answers that question for us. It it tells us that the breast and the right thigh are given to the priest and all the rest is eaten by the offerer. And that is another unique thing about this peace offering. It is the only one of all the offerings that is shared by the priest, the offerer, and the Lord. Now, God makes clear in places like Psalm 50, you might write that down and read it later, Psalm 50, some great language in Psalm 50. God essentially says, I don't need your food. God God doesn't need food. God doesn't eat anything. God doesn't need. God is not sustained by anything. And we can actually pick that up even right here in Leviticus 3. It's kind of obvious in that the portion that's offered to him is turned into smoke. He's not eating anything. But there is still pictured here a, a sharing of this animal in that portion is a portion is given to God, offered up in smoke, and the rest is consumed by the priest and the offerer. 
listen to Deuteronomy 12.7. We get this picture of a shared meal. Again, this is about life in the promised land when the people bring their offerings to God, including specifically their peace offerings. The text reads, And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice and your households in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So you got this picture of this great fellowship meal, having offered a portion to the Lord and given a portion to the priests. The people then enjoy their portion before the Lord, that is in the Lord's presence. There's, there's this idea that we are, there, there's, there's close proximity to the Lord as we're eating this food, part of an animal that we have offered to Him. This idea of, of sharing a meal. So this offering, this offering, the peace offering, this is like the grand cherry on top offering that expresses the culmination of all the others. This is what the whole tabernacle complex is intended to accomplish. Communion between God and man. That's a great way of thinking about this offering. is a communion offering. An, an expression of joyful fellowship afforded by atonement depicted by a shared meal. In a sense, the offer is saying to God, I rejoice that I have peace and fellowship with you through your gracious provision. Now, you might write down Luke 24, 27. Luke 24, 27. This is a text where Jesus, the risen Christ, on the road to Emmaus, He's speaking to these two disciples. They don't know who He is. But the text reads, And beginning with Moses and, and all the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. What What a wonderful thing, right? Now, if the great expositor were to walk us through Leviticus chapter 3, what might he say? Well, he might say, Christ's blood has brought about our communion. Christ's blood has brought about our communion. All mankind lost God in the garden because all mankind is descended from Adam. And and Paul argues in Romans chapter 1 through 3 that because of our common rebellion, we all, Jew and Gentile, we are all conceived estranged from God. Romans 3.23 is very clear about this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, falling short of the glory of God. Many of us have heard that phrase so many times that we're in danger of it becoming the theological white noise of our world. Haven't we heard that so many times, some of us? Falling short of the glory of God. We're in danger of that becoming theological white noise. And we really need to fight that. Because... To fall short of the glory of God is to lose that for which we were created. It it is to be something like a boat that never floats. A, a, A bird of flight that never flies. A song that is never sung. A hammer that is never swung. We we have a design. 
And every part of us, every part of us is knit together for one ultimate thing. And that is to enjoy, to bask in the radiant effulgence of the personhood of Almighty God. That's it. That's what we're designed for. And so to fall short of the glory of God is to be born and to live and breathe and to die for nothing. That's what it is to fall short of the glory of God. And, 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 and it is the ultimate tragedy. It is the only life story that will replay endlessly in the minds of those doomed to spend eternity in the presence of His absence and in the, I'm sorry, in the absence of His presence and the presence of His wrath. And most of us know Romans 3.23 by heart. The question is, do you know the words immediately following? So, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Following words are, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. I'm going to read that again. It's Romans 24 and 25. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Jesus Christ, crucified in the place of sinners, His blood satisfying the wrath of God, that's what a propitiation is. So Jesus died on the cross. He was raised three days later. Paul writes about all of that. That is a gift to be received by faith. And of that, he uses the word justification, justified by grace. That means, to be justified means to be declared righteous. Declared righteous, not, not made righteous. Declared righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness credited to our account by faith. And what is the result of that? What is the result of our being declared righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness, His record being credited to our account by faith? What's the result of that? It's not just, not just the removal of wrath and guilt. Thank God that it is that. But there's more than that. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 5 if you would, please. Romans chapter 5 is already read for us this morning by Pastor Dan. It's worth reading again, I'd say. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. What is the result of our having been justified? Paul writes beginning in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access to by faith, into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, Paul is painting a picture of our standing in the presence of God, in a sense, because of the sacrifice of Christ and rejoicing in fellowship with Him. Rejoicing there, standing in the presence of God. But what, what is this that he writes about? 
in hope of the glory of God. We think of hope as a forward-looking thing. In hope of the glory of God. Well, we've talked in past weeks about the fact that there's a sense in which we have the blessings of salvation and another sense in which we wait expectantly for the blessings of salvation. And this this is one of those. In a sense, we have fellowship now with God. We are able to to talk to God through the mediation of Christ. His Spirit dwells inside of us. There is no wall of sin separating us. But the fullness of that fellowship is yet future. When, when the Godhead will dwell among us as is written so gloriously in Revelation 21 and 22, we will see Him. And if you, if, if you, if you have not read Revelation 21 and 22 in recent days, what a great way to spend some time this afternoon as, as we read that language about there will be no need for lights, no need for shining bodies in the sky. There's no need for a sun, no need for a moon. Why? Because His glory will be the light by which we live. That glory that, 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 that Romans 3.23 says, we have sinned and fallen short of it. Well, by the sacrifice of Christ, fallen short no more, eternally seeing by the light of that glory. Because of the shed blood of Christ, we rejoice in hope of that future glory. And and again, we've said this many times before, biblical hope is is not like worldly hope. It It is not wishful thinking, but rather it is confident assurance of a certain future reality. We will commune. We we will enjoy fellowship with God eternally as we were created to do. Because of Jesus Christ, because of what He has done, the believer, we, we can say to the Father, I rejoice that I have peace and fellowship with you because of your gracious provision. And because this is true of us, there are implications for the lifestyle of a believer. As we enjoy fellowship with God now and as we look forward to the ultimate expression of that that fellowship, there are implications for our lifestyle now. And I want to give those to you. Life in Christ is lived in fellowship. Life in Christ is lived in fellowship. Numerous ways that that priority of present fellowship and the certainty of future fellowship are reflected in the life of the believer. And first of all, formally... It's expressed in the Lord's Supper. It's expressed formally in the Lord's Supper. Isn't it kind of the Lord to time this passage to arrive on a Sunday when we were observing the Lord's Supper? We didn't plan that. We didn't. (laughs) Obviously, He did. But hallelujah for that. There are great parallels between the Old Testament peace offering and the Lord's Supper. In fact, our definition of the peace offering fits the Lord's Supper very well. There's obviously much more that we could say about the Lord's Supper, but the Lord's Supper is, among other things, an expression of joyful fellowship afforded by atonement depicted by a shared meal. When we observe the Lord's Supper, we recognize how by faith we've been joined to Christ unto fellowship with the Father and fellowship with one another. And as we've, as we've noted this morning, as, as Pastor Rick told us, and as we sang We proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. That is, there's a forward-looking element whereby we anticipate perfect future fellowship in eternity. 
So the Lord's Supper is a, is, a, is a way that we corporately say, we rejoice that we have peace and fellowship with you, God, through your gracious provision. So the priority of fellowship is reflected formally in the Lord's Supper. It's reflected informally in at least three ways. In at least three ways. First, in personal devotion. In personal devotion. By personal devotion, we mean one-on-one fellowship with a person, God. It's it's just fellowship with the Lord. We engage in that one-on-one fellowship through the Word and prayer. But that fellowship is not synonymous with reading the Bible and praying. Most of us could testify to reading the Bible and praying, but not enjoying fellowship with the Lord, right? Most of us could probably testify to that. I've read the Bible, I've prayed, and and did not enjoy fellowship with the Lord. We need to not equate those two things, but think of the Bible and prayer as how we enjoy fellowship with the Lord. Like windows through which we enjoy the Lord. Now, let me recommend three resources to you to help you engage in fellowship with the Lord through the Word and prayer. Now, these things are not magically going to result in fellowship, but they will help you to be intentional, mindful, in your Bible reading and prayer such that you will likely enjoy Him as you read and pray. The first is to get on our website on the resource link at the top. Click on that. The very first resource at the top, it's on the top left. Icon there says Bible reading. Click on that and pick a Bible reading plan. And think of a Bible reading plan as a tool, not a master. Okay? You use the tool. The tool doesn't use you. So if you, if you miss a day, just my, my counsel is if you miss a day, just skip to the next day because you can become crippled by these things and then you just give up. Remember, it's a tool. You use the tool. The tool doesn't use you. And in my experience, having a plan is better than no plan at all. So I would suggest pick, pick a plan. Second, a great resource is, is the Growth in Godliness Journal that Pastor Jason designed. Some, some of us hear the word journal and we think, oh great, you want me to keep a diary. It's not what we're talking about. This is a tool that kind of walks you through a methodical way of bridging your Bible reading to your prayer life and to life application. Very, very helpful. If, if you have in the past or currently struggled with this chasm between Bible reading and prayer, and life, and fellowship with God, you would be helped by this resource that Pastor Jason has put together, the Growth and Godliness Journal. Ask Pastor Jason about that. A third resource is an, is an itty-bitty little book on prayer called Enjoy Your Prayer Life. Enjoy Your Prayer Life. It's by Michael Reeves. It will help you enjoy your prayer life. It's... Far away, in my view, the, the best book on prayer I've ever read. You can stack all the others up, read them, and then read this little one. You'll be as benefited by this little book on Michael Reeves as, as all the others put together. It, it is very good at helping you to think about the fact that when you are praying, you are entering into the enjoyment of a relationship. So by personal devotion, we, we are saying to God, I rejoice that I have peace and fellowship with you through your gracious provision. 
We reflect the priority of fellowship or communion in our lives informally via personal devotion. Secondly, in Christian fellowship. In Christian fellowship. Fellowship with God is actually manifested in fellowship with believers. There are a couple of reasons for this. God has reconciled us to Himself and He has intended for that to be expressed in fellowship with other believers. A couple of reasons for that. First of all, is that this is one of the ways, fellowship with one another is one of the ways that we demonstrate to the world that we actually are Christians, that we have fellowship with God. And we, we, we find this in places like John 13, 35. Jesus said to the disciples, By this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Now how does that demonstrate that we are believers. Well, because of what we're all like before we're believers. One of the earmarks of unbelief or lostness is hating everyone and being hated by everyone. And we actually find that in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. It's one of the descriptors that Paul puts in there. Hated by others, hating everyone. Right? Now the following verses read this way. Paul says, Well, that's what everybody is in their lostness. And then he continues in verses 4 and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So when we go from people who hate to people who love, we show that something remarkable has happened to us. And therefore, churches should be places where people spend time together in loving fellowship as a means of demonstrating the truth of the gospel. We're no longer hated haters, but we are loved lovers of of all these people around us that demonstrates the truth of the gospel. There's another reason that, that fellowship with God is associated with fellowship with other people. And that is that Christian fellowship is an indispensable means by which God has designed us to grow into the likeness of Christ. That is, we, we can't grow spiritually outside of fellowship with other believers. We won't take time to read the whole passage, but you might write down Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 16. Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. God's plan for church growth isn't to hire fire eaters to draw a crowd. It also isn't to incorporate Fortune 500 leadership strategies. Rather, it's very simple. It's in Ephesians 4, and it is for everyone in the body to use their particular gifting to serve everyone else in the body so that the body corporate and the individual members grow up into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Now, that's plan A. There is no plan B. And it requires us spending time together. Fellowship. And I would suggest to you more than on Sunday mornings. We, we get a little bit of, of fellowship on Sunday mornings. Not enough to really sharpen one another. We get more in our home fellowship groups. Likely not enough to really sharpen each other. Those forums are actually what we think of as the seed beds for the relationships where we will actually actually sharpen one another. So think of, of Sunday mornings, home fellowship groups, as the necessary place where you will find the people that you will spend time with outside of those forums to grow spiritually. So, so find those people. Ask them for coffee. Ask them to read the Bible with you. Take the initiative. Don't wait for the, for the invitation. You be the mover. By Christian fellowship, we say to God, 
we rejoice that we have peace and fellowship with you through your gracious provision. Another way that we, that we live out the priority of fellowship informally is through the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation. What is that? Well, that's a phrase that comes from 2 Corinthians 5. I ask you to turn over there with me if you would. 2 Corinthians 5. It's a passage that we reference often. There's some great verses worth memorizing. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Verse 21, for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. What I want to point out this morning is how the chapter shows Paul using the desire for fellowship with God as fuel for evangelistic effort. So look with me at the beginning of 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 1. Paul writes, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life." Now, Paul's using a bunch of figurative language there to express his desire to, to not be here in this life, but to be with God. And he's got this great hope of the glory of God that he wants to see realized in himself and in those around him. I wish we had the time to go through this whole passage. We don't. But in verse 10, he notes that between now and that day of the realization of the hope of the glory of God, between now and that day, there's a judgment day. And so, verse 11 Look at verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of God, we persuade others. What is he talking about? What does he persuade them about? He persuades them about the gospel. Knowing that there is a judgment day and knowing that there is this great hope of the glory of God on the other side of that judgment day, we persuade others. Jump down to verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The point is that, that, that Paul and his companions, as they long for face-to-face -face fellowship with God, they seek to be pleasing to Him by seeking to persuade others to be reconciled to Him and to join them in that face-to-face -face fellowship with God eternally. In other words, the disciple of Jesus Christ is so all about communion with God through Christ that He seeks to bring others into that communion by sharing the gospel with all those around them. So, Young people, think about the person who sits next to you at school or, or the, the friend who plays on, on your sports team. Young adults and, and, and older folks, th think about your coworker, the, the person that you talk to every day. Your, your neighbor that you, you, you need to get to know but you just haven't gotten around to it. Maybe that person at the gym that, that 
You, you know their face, they know your face, and, and you even acknowledge each other, as you, you nod at each other as you pass by one another every time you're working out. Think about all of them, all of those people. They have fallen short of the glory of God. And as it stands today, they are doomed to never know that for which they were created and designed, which is fellowship with the Almighty. And now think about this. What are we really saying? We who have fellowship with God and ostensibly rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but remain silent in the presence of those languishing in the same lost condition as we once were. What do we say by our silence? You may have heard this before. It's very memorable. Essentially, we are saying, all for me, not for thee. Have we we really enjoyed fellowship with God if we never seek to bring another into it? Have we really enjoyed it? Conversely, consider this thought. What a boon to that that joy of, of fellowship with God to share in fellowship with the Lord alongside one who has heard and believed His gospel as spoken from your lips. And then to say together with that person, we rejoice, we rejoice because we have peace and fellowship with you through your gracious provision. See, the life, the life of the believer is lived in fellowship. It's all about fellowship. And it is expressed, among other things, in this ministry of reconciliation, calling other people into this same fellowship that we enjoy. Oh, the blessedness of the reconciled state. That person who can say, I rejoice in the fellowship of, of, of this provision that God has given me. Listen, if you have never trusted in Christ, you are outside that fellowship. But the good news is that today you can repent and trust in Christ. He calls you to do that. He calls you to turn from your sin, to trust in Jesus' provision alone for your sins, and to follow Him with everything that you are, and to enjoy fellowship with Him eternally. If you don't understand any of that, or or if there's any one little piece of it you don't understand, ask someone around you this morning. Ask me, ask one of the other elders. We would be happy to talk to you. But don't leave this place with unanswered questions, that you may enjoy eternal fellowship with the Lord, with us. Now, after I pray, we're going to share a moment of silent reflection. And I would encourage you to consider, how is it that the Lord would have you to reflect the joy of fellowship? Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the goodness of the gift that you've given us in Christ, the atonement that we have in him, and the fellowship that it has afforded with you and with one another. We ask, Father, that our lives would indeed be characterized by fellowship in all of these ways, that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we would cherish it and rejoice, that our lives would be characterized by informal celebration of fellowship as we enjoy you devotionally, as we enjoy one another in in corporate fellowship and, and, and private fellowship, and as we engage in the ministry of reconciliation, Lord. Help us to be so overcome with the joy of knowing that we once were estranged, but now we are not. We've been brought close by the blood of Christ. Lord, help that to, to enter our every thought and motivate our every deed in this life until that day when we see you face to face and enjoy the fullness of the gift that you've given us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.